Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and Revelation in chapter number four. The book of Revelation and chapter number four. We're at the very beginning of our series dealing with the millennial kingdom. And remember that the subject of the millennial kingdom is the most talked about subject found within the word of God, except for the tabernacle and temple. It is something that we need to be familiar with. And so in the last several messages, we've been setting up the foundation of it, trying to set up the principle, the purpose, setting up some terms, defining our terms, explaining what we mean. And now we had begin starting the timeline that in order to get to the millennial kingdom, we had to cover that the very next next event on God's calendar is something called the rapture, where those who know Jesus Christ as their personal savior are going to be called away from this earth. The dead in Christ shall rise first, then us that alive and remain shall meet them together up in the air, and we're going to be up with Jesus Christ. Now, the next logical question is, is that even though there is something called the tribulation going on in earth during this time, we are not going to be a part of it. So, What is the church going to be doing up in heaven during that time frame? That's a very good question, probably a question that a lot of people haven't thought about, but I'm thankful that the Bible has an answer on that. So the book of Revelation in chapter number four, and let's read this passage and then discern from this passage a little bit more about what is in store for us in God's calendar. Revelation chapter four, notice with me in verse number one. Revelation chapter four and verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a a lion. And the second beast was like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like an eagle. And the four beasts had of them six wings about him and there were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying holy 
holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And if you wouldn't mind, if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that is repeated twice in this passage in Revelation in chapter number four? Revelation in chapter four, notice with me in verse four, the four and twenty elders four and 20 elders. And then once again in verse number 10, the four and 20 elders. And with this backdrop here, we are going to explain the events of the church after the rapture. The events for the church after the rapture. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you and examine your scriptures, help us to be able to discern and learn quite a bit from this, that we would be able to set things in order, explain things clearly, that we would be correct in our interpretation and our and correct in our application. We're asking that you would guide and direct and do it for your own honor, for your own glory, for your own praise, that we could see what is up ahead and that we can plan here and now where we live at now for this future events. Lord, set things in order. I am desperately in need of you today. I surrender my health, my voice, my thoughts, my ambitions, my goals, my desires. I give them to you that you can get accomplished what you want to get done through your precious word. Just using me as an instrument, fill me with your spirit and guide in everything that is done so that this meeting here would matter for eternity. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Revelation, we have a natural outline that is presented to us in the book of Revelation chapter one. If you don't mind just kind of setting up the precedent and trying to set up the context of what is occurring, Revelation in chapter one. And if you notice in verse number 19, the book of Revelation will outline itself. The book of Revelation chapter one and verse 19, it says, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And verse number 19 is the natural outline of the book of Revelation. It starts off with the things that thou hast seen. That deals with the past things. This is going to cover Revelation in chapter number one, the things that were past In addition, there's a second part of the outline, right? The things which thou hast seen and the things which are. That means present tense, not our present tense, by the way, but the present tense of the writer, John the Apostle, who's writing this about 90 AD. And we're going to see that there are some events that are occurring in his present tense in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and in chapter 3. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 
are a series of seven letters that the Lord Jesus Christ wrote to seven individual distinct local churches of John's day, giving them some needed correction, some encouragement, some things that needed to be taken care of, but that was in the present tense. So we have the things that were past, the things that now are, and then the third part of the book of Revelation is outlined in verse number 19, write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, speaking about the things to come. And the things to come begin in Revelation in chapter number four. Revelation in chapter number four, we find the things that are in the future, even in our future. Now we know that the very next event on God's calendar is what is called the rapture. We spoke about this the last time we met and the series speaking about the rapture that it is our blessed hope. It is a time where Jesus Christ is going to call for all of the saints, everyone who's ever trusted Jesus Christ to be their personal savior for the forgiveness of sins. Everyone is going to be called away at that time. There is no more signs, no more wonders, no more events, no more prophecies, no more things that needs to be set in order, wars, rumors of wars, celestial events, Nothing has to be fulfilled in order for the rapture to come. It could happen at any moment. It could happen before we're done preaching. It could happen in another 50 years. We do not know, but it is the next event. There is nothing else that has to occur for the rapture to happen. In fact, we see a glimpse of this rapture in the book of Revelation chapter 4, going back to our main text. Revelation in chapter 4, we begin to see the things that are in the future. Notice with me in verse 1. After this I looked. Now, this is John who's saying I, John the Apostle, writing in about 90 AD. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. That phrase, come up hither, is our same idea of the rapture the calling away, calling him up. In fact, if you're writing notes or if you write in your margin, you could put that there. This is the rapture. This calling away, come up hither. And John, who lived at 90 AD, had the privilege of participating in this future event of the rapture. That God is going to allow John out of time to be called up into this event to be an eyewitness of these things. What a great privilege it was. So John, who's told by God to have a pen and paper in hand, begins to write down the things that he sees. Now, remember that a lot of the things he is trying to write from a first century point of view with a first century vocabulary, a first century thing, and he's trying to understand the things that were given to him. And so we do understand that Revelation has a lot of imagery in it, but this is a way of trying to get across a true fact, a literal fact, a true occurring. Notice as we continue on verse one, and after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be 
hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne and the sight of him was unto an emerald. So was John the apostle is taken out of time to be brought upward into heaven. He is, gets to witness the events of the rapture and begins to write down and recall what he sees, what is going to happen still in our future. He begins to record what happens to the church right immediately after the rapture. Almost like a newspaper reporter just in the background writing down what he sees. And he starts off by seeing this throne where God is there. But notice there's something else in verse number four. And round about the throne were four and 20 seats. And upon the seats I saw four and 20 elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, when John's looking, he sees marvelous sights. And one of the first thing he witnesses as he looks at God and then sees the things around God is this representation of the church. In here, it has the four and 20 elders. And I'm going to, in just a moment, prove and show you from the scripture that this is a visible uh, representation of the church. Of course, we know that millions and millions of people have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior. And so it'd be very impractical and implausible for him to try to recall the masses. He'll see the masses later, but here he's going to see a representation of the church here among the throne through these four and 20 elders. Now, before we actually get into the message, we need to go ahead and explain these four and 20 elders and kind of logically and biblically show that these are the representation of the church. We know that they are the representation of the church, those people who've accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior in this setting by several traits. Notice with me, if you don't mind, that the first idea is this word elder. The basic concept of an elder is that of a representative of the people. Now, we also understand that when you think of an elder, someone who is mature, someone who is kind of settled in their ways, with it, we carry that idea that they are a representation of their people. If you thought of an elder of a tribe, they were supposed to be the representation of their people. Here, we have these elders here sitting as a representative, as a picture for all of those people who have accepted Christ as their Savior. In addition, notice how many of them they are. Verse 4, and around about the throne there were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting. Notice the number, there are 24. Now this actually comes from that picture of Levitical priesthood that we know that around the high priest at any time, he would have 24 priests who would be working alongside with him. We know that according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9, that God's people, Christians who have accepted Christ as their Savior, are termed a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. Both functions are shown here, that they are a priesthood of... <coughs> 
of dealing with the idea of a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood, people that are going to be ruling and reigning and working with God alongside of him. Notice if you don't mind, the elders were seated just like Jesus had promised they were. If you are liking references, Matthew 19, 28 is one where Jesus is talking about the disciples that they will be sitting around him in the end times. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, which is nearby, we can look at that one. This is dealing with one of the churches, the church of Lady Osea, but notice God's promise in Revelation 3.21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I have overcome, and am sit down with my father in his throne. So once again, we could see how the elders are sitting there. They are sitting there just like Jesus had promised those who accepted Christ as a savior. These are representation of the church. In addition, notice what they are wearing. Round verse, uh, chapter four, verse four, round about the throne were four and 20 seats. And upon the seats, I saw four and 20 elders sitting clothed in white raiment. The clothes that they're wearing are very specific. The Bible says the white raiment represents the righteousness that has been imputed upon the believer. Meaning that we don't don't approach God because of our own righteousness. We have nothing but filthy rags. We have to take off the old man and Jesus puts on his righteousness and clothes it it upon us. Notice again Revelation chapter 3. This is made mention of once again in verse number four, Revelation three verses um, four and five. Thou hath a few names in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And of course, there's many other references that explain that when we accept Jesus Christ as our savior, that when we get to the other side of glory, he's going to clothe us in white raiment. In fact, Revelation 19, when Jesus Christ comes back to conquer the earth, to rule and reign, we're coming back with him and guess what we're wearing? We're wearing white. Again, we're building up a case. We're going to get to the preaching in a bit. I know this is more teaching, but I don't want to just say that this is a representation of the church and move on. I want to at least kind of bring you along with it so you don't just assume that I'm right. I want you to know these things for yourself. Notice not only where they're sitting, how they're sitting, the clothes they're sitting, but notice what they're wearing on their heads. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number four. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. These crowns were also be representation of those who have accepted Christ as their savior. The crowns that they're wearing are not monarchs crowns, but rather the word that's used there identifies a difference. These are victor crowns, the same type of crowns that someone would win in an Olympics. In the old ancient world, they had the Olympic games and they would receive a laurel leaf to wear as their prize. That would be the uh, significance that they have done a good job, that they have won the fight, they have won the victory, and here is a crown for them to show that they have won the victory. So these are not 
uh, crowns because they are monarchs and ruling. These are crowns because they've been judged worthy and received as a reward for their race that they have run. Notice something else that we identify. Their worship suggests that they are representation of the church. When they worship God in the next chapter, they announce that God has redeemed us. Notice chapter 5 and verse 8, still speaking about these same people. Chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders, so here we're talking about these people, fell down before the Lamb, everyone having them harps, golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, speaking about the four and twenty elders, they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou was slain and has redeemed us. May I remind you that angels cannot be redeemed? It is only men, mankind, that can be redeemed through the blood of the Lamb has purchased back. And so these four and 20 elders are representation of the church. How do we know this? Because they have been redeemed people. This is the whole idea that God has redeemed them. Now with that, we can also take this and make a whole big college study. We're not doing this. I'm just giving you several evidences. And so here we have the four and 20 elders, which are representation of those people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. As another G whiz information, let me show you something else that's in the throne room and then we'll get to the message. Notice something else just as of interest, verse number seven. It speaks about that there is a beast in there. Four beasts actually, notice in chapter four, verse seven. And the first beast was like a lion. The second beast was like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Now, this is not the first time this creature has showed up in Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 1, this creature is shown. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, this creature is shown. But notice this. This is going to be a physical representation of the gospel records. For those of you who have been in evening school, you've been done this before. But notice this. We have the lion, which represents Jesus Christ pictured in the gospel record of Matthew, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That the gospel record of Matthew is written to the Hebrew mind to show that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Notice second, uh, second beast. The first beast was like a lion. The second beast was like a calf like an ox. We know that the gospel record of Mark pictures Jesus Christ as an ox. An ox is a working animal. It's something you would harness up to help you plow the fields. And in the gospel record of Mark, it's written to the Roman mind who is always appreciates action rather than words. It shows the Lord Jesus Christ pictured as the perfect servant. He's pictured as an ox. Verse number seven, again, we have a third beast that had a face of a man. This is going to be the gospel record of Luke, which was written to the Greek mind. The Greeks were always looking for the perfect man. And the gospel record of Luke portrays Jesus Christ as the perfect man. And then we have the fourth beast, which would be 
representation of a flying eagle, which would be the gospel record of John that soars high above all the rest of them, that is written for all mankind to prove that Jesus Christ was indeed God. Again, this is interesting because as it talks about the four and 20 elders, it also says that there is a physical representation of the gospels of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, pictured in four different ways. Jesus Christ as the lion, Jesus Christ as an ox, Jesus Christ as a man, the perfect man, and Jesus Christ as God. All of these here, these four and 20 elders. Now, that was the Bible study. Let's get to the preaching. What happens to those who've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior after they are raptured up? What are we doing? Well, the very first thing that occurs when we get raptured up is something called the Bema Seat of Christ. The Bema Seat of Christ, the judgment throne of Jesus. The very first event that we have immediately after the rapture is that we are going to stand before Christ and give an account for the works that we have done after we became a Christian, but after we have received Jesus Christ as our savior. Now at this judgment, we are not being judged for our sins. That has already been taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is going to be a different judgment. Notice if you don't mind, as the Bible speaks about this judgment several different places, just look at a couple of them. Notice with me 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We will eventually return back to Revelation chapter 4, but we want to take several pit stops first. The very first event for those who've accepted Christ as their savior immediately after the rapture is going to be something called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. Notice with me in 2 Corinthians chapter number five. 2 Corinthians chapter five, notice what the Bible says about this judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter five, and let's start together in verse eight. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord. So immediately after we are absent from this body, we're going to be present with the Lord. We're going to be in this judgment. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Our goal is to be pleasing to God. Verse 10, for we must all what does that word all mean? All. all. Everyone who's accepted Christ as their savior, everyone goes to this judgment. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he had done, whether it be good or bad. So when we stand before Christ, we're not going to be judged for our sins, but we're going to be judged for what we have done for Christ and our motives for doing this. Well, you say, well, why is this such a scary thing? It's always a scary thing. For example, I used to play trumpet a long time ago, and I would play in competitions. And when I would play for competitions, I would always be nervous. Why? Is it because I've failed? They're going to tie me up, throw me in the back of a car, and then drive me out to the desert and let me loose, and that's what I'm going to get if I failed? No. But I am being evaluated or judged to see what type of reward I would get. Does that make sense? 
we're going to have to stand before God and give an accounting of everything that has been done in our bodies after we've accepted Jesus Christ, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Now, we're going to speak about this continually through the rest of the series because this event is such a big deal. Everything you do has a consequence. Let's say <laughs> that I have a bad day and I'm mad and upset in my mind. You say, well, that doesn't matter. It does because if I'm supposed to witness to someone and I miss it because I'm focused on myself, that person dies and goes to hell because I didn't witness to them. That is a big deal. Or how I speak to someone. I may speak to someone gruffly and roughly. And now I'll never have the opportunity to influence them for the Lord because I push them away. Perhaps even the most important thing we can do as Christians, raise our kids. Do you understand that we are raising our kids to serve the Lord? And we're going to stand before God and have to give an account of why we didn't train our kids upright. If our kids were supposed to be a missionary and we didn't train our kids to follow after Christ and those people never got saved because that missionary didn't go there, we are going to stand before God and have to give an account for that. This is a big deal. We're going to receive rewards or a loss of rewards. Everything we have done, everything that you say, in fact, the Bible says in a different passage, Jesus says, every idle word will be brought into account. What is idle word? That's what you're saying when you're not thinking. For example, you go to a grocery store and you hear the music playing overhead and you got the jukebox in your mind and you begin to sing the song and not even realize it. That's an idle word. Everything you do, everything you've said, everything that you thought is going to be brought into judgment. And you're going to be evaluated, judged, and rewarded or lost rewards based off of what you did for Christ and your motives for doing it. Notice verse 11. It follows this up as a strict warning. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. What's the terror of the Lord? I have to stand before God. It should be a terrible thing. That word terrible, terror carries the idea of something all striking. Something that you go, wow, this is a big deal. You cannot underscore or uh, overemphasize the judgment seat of Christ enough for a believer. You will stand before God. And this is a very serious thing. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. And I trust also made manifest to your consciences. Notice this, because I know I'm going to stand before God, I now persuade men. What am I persuading men? About the gospel. I want them to get saved, follow after God, obey God. This is our job. This is our purpose to try to help people to have a better judgment. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Notice this same topic is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians in chapter number 3. We're speaking about the events that happen to those who have known Jesus Christ as their Savior immediately after the rapture. The very first event is the judgment seat of Christ. That we're going to stand before God and give an account. And 1 Corinthians in chapter number 3, notice with me in verse 8. 
1 Corinthians chapter 8. In fact, notice with me starting at verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6. I, this is Paul, have planted and Apolloth watereth, but God gave the increase. This is talking about salvation. You understand that <coughs> we all have a part to play. We don't save anybody. God saves them. But we all have a part to play. For example, Paul said, I plant it, but Apollos watered. Meaning that Paul started off by giving someone the gospel. But when Apollos came, it was what was needed to have them spring up. And they finally accept Christ as their savior. If you were to ask the apostle Paul, how did you get saved? You know what he always did? He went back to a time he was not saved. And he met a person by the name of Stephen. And he witnessed as Stephen was murdered. And it said that Saul was consenting to his death. That Paul, who was Saul at the time, was cheering the people on. Can you imagine that? Witnessing and cheering for someone to be murdered? And he watched as Stephen is being murdered. Stephen looks up, looks at Paul's eyes and says, I forgive you. Paul says, I never got over that. All those years that chased me. It haunted me. I could never get over him looking at me and saying, I forgive you. I was killing him. I was cheering for him to die. And he forgave me. That's not what got him saved, but it's what tilled the soil so he could get saved. You know, it could be that you are witnessing to someone, you try to tell them, you, you planted the seed, and later on, someone from a different church witnesses them, and they get saved. You never know about it, but you had a hand in it. And one day, you're going to stand before God, and he's going to show you all that planting that you did and all the people that got saved. What an amazing God. It is important what we do. It matters quite a bit. That's why when we go out soul winning, I love the kids, teenagers. They may not be willing to talk yet, but they can put a track on the door. And if someone gets saved because they put a track on that door, that kid gets a credit for it. They had a hand in seeing someone get saved. It is a big deal. It is a wonderful thing. What we do does matter. The, uh, the results are not up to us and we're not judged for the results. We are being judged for what did we do? Notice verse 6, but I planted, but Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God give the increase. Paul is putting the emphasis and said, I didn't save them and Apollos didn't save them. God saved them. All I was was the instrument that God used. It was God that did the whole thing. I'm just glad to be an instrument. Verse number eight. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, meaning they're the same. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. What does this mean? This means that you are not in competition with me. And you are not in competition with Paul. You have your own race to run with your own opportunities and your own abilities. Every single one of us have different abilities. Every single one of us have different opportunities. There are people that you will talk to that I will never see. All we are to do is take advantage of those opportunities with the abilities God gave to us and use them wisely. 
Your race is not with anyone else. Your race is with your own abilities and your own opportunities. God will say, this is, I gave you a chance to witness to this person. How come you didn't? I gave you the opportunity to serve me this way. How come you didn't? Hey, I gave you the opportunity to talk to this person and you did. And you get rewards for it. It's based off of our own opportunities and our own abilities. Now, this is a help because we're not in competition with someone else. You don't have to worry about keeping tallies. Well, I'm doing better than my daughter today. All right, this is great. I'm going to show her. We all have our own race to run. And we are being judged off of our own abilities and our own opportunities. Everyone shall receive his own personalized reward based off of his own personalized labor that God had given him to do. Notice with me, if you don't mind, verse number uh, nine. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let everyone take heed how he buildeth upon. So we have a foundation. The foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. And based on that foundation, we labor and build things together on it. Verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our foundation. That's our basis. We don't have any merit to stand on except for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done it all. He saved us from our sins. He's forgiven us. He's given us grace and mercy and ability. It is all on him. We build off of what God has already done for us. Verse 12, now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. So here are different building materials. Now, we think of today's building materials, erase that, go back to the ancient world. In the ancient world, people would build with what they had available. And so people would build their house out of grass, out of straw. They would do what they can. They would have a pitched roof and put straw and grass around it. There were some people that would take wood and they would build the whole thing out of wood. There would be some other people that would take stubble and they would just patch holes with it. Well, when it comes time to put fire to it, guess what's going to get burnt up? In fact, back when Nero set fire to Rome, the whole thing caught on fire because all the poor section of town, their houses were made out of wood, hay, and stubble. It just burnt up like kindling, just caught on fire quickly. Today, we have building codes and fire inspectors and whatnot to try to keep that from happening. But back then, they used the material that they had available, and it would not stand the test of time. Whereas, on the other hand, you have gold, silver, and precious stones. These would not be burnt up in a regular fire. These would stand the test of time. These would last for years and years and years. So, verse 13, every man's work, so that means everything that you have done for the Lord, or what you've done not for the Lord, is going to be made manifest. Meaning it's going to be put to the test. It's going to be evident for everyone to see. For that, for the day, what day? The day of judgment. The day that you stand before God. The day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work, notice this, of what 
sort it is. Notice we're being judged for what sort of work. We're not being judged for our sins. That has already been taken care of because of Jesus Christ. We are going to be judged for our labor for the Lord and our motives. Do you know that you could serve the Lord but have the wrong motives for it? We're doing it. We're being judged of what sort it was. Did I do the right thing with the right motives? And everything, can you imagine your entire life pictured as a house? And when the judgment comes, fire's going to be set to it. And only the things that were done for Christ with the right motives is going to last. It's going to be burnt up. You know, there are people that will spend 10,000 hours building a whole landscape in Minecraft. All that hours of labor nothing to show for it. Gone. Absolutely gone. Can you imagine your life's work? You've given your life to build something, to make something in your life. But because you did not do it for God, you have nothing to show for it. Nothing. Whole life's work just gone. You understand this is a big deal. This is a very big deal that every man's work is going to be judged and it's going to be judged of what sort it is. We're going to receive rewards or loss of rewards. Verse 14, if any man's work abide, which he had built thereon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved. So notice, he's not going to hell. He's still going to be saved. Yet, as so by fire, he's going to receive a loss of reward. He's still going to be able to go to the millennial kingdom. He's still going to be with Christ, but he's not going to have anything to show for it. By the way, these rewards are very substantial and will last for 1,000 years. Could you imagine spending all of your life that you have on this earth and wasting it and then going to the millennial kingdom saying, I didn't serve God. I didn't have anything to show for it for a thousand years. Everybody else gets to enjoy the rewards and I had nothing to show for it. This is a big deal. Bigger than you can even imagine right now. This is a big deal deal. You will stand before God. You will stand before the Christ who died on the cross for you and your life will be judged. Your works will be judged on what you did for Christ and the motives that you have. Now, what type of rewards can we earn? Well, the Bible says there's many different rewards. And again, in the Millennial Kingdom series, we'll mention it from time to time and show you more rewards. But For the uh, purpose of this message today, there are five crowns that are mentioned. Now, we talked about the elders wearing golden crowns. These were not crowns of ruling, but crowns of victory of what they earned, that they showed good job. This is part of the rewards. The Bible mentions there are five crowns that we can earn based off of our works and labor for the Lord. What are these crowns? Well, let's mention these five crowns that are shown in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We have the first crown that's mentioned, 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9.
1 Corinthians chapter 9 and notice with me verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 25 it says this. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. The nickname of this crown is called the incorruptible crown. And this is given to all of those that show temperance in their life for the purpose of a testimony for the Lord. Now, let's try to illustrate this. We know that in our life there are some things that are not illegal or moral or sinful for us to do. But there are some things that may be illegal, not illegal, not immoral, not unbiblical, not sinful, but I choose not to do them in order to run my race. Here's an illustration. It's talking about the Olympics here, uh, games which were a very big thing in this part of the world, in the ancient world. Paul is making a reference to this. Let's say that I'm a distance runner. Once upon a time, I, again, I was a distance runner, but not no more. But back in the days when I did distance running, that... The night before a run, I would not gorge myself an ice cream. All right, I got a race tomorrow. No ice cream for me. I'm choosing not to. Now, is ice cream sinful? Is ice cream illegal? Is ice cream unbiblical? Is ice cream good? It is. It's wonderful. It tastes good. Yum, yum, yum. But I choose not to do it. So I could run the best race I possibly could. That's showing temperance. That in order to run the best race that I have for Christ, I choose to take some things out of my life so that way I could run the best life. I could run my best race. For example, if Facebook gets in the way of my Bible reading, I can choose to get rid of Facebook in order to run my race better. Does it make sense? I'm showing temperance. I want to run the best race I possibly can. So I remove some things in my life that may not be bad. They may be good things, but I set them aside so I could run the best race because I want to please my master. I want to do my best for him. And if there's something that's in the way, I set aside. Those who do this with their life can earn what is called the incorruptible crown. Those who show temperance or moderation in order to have a testimony for the Lord and for others. For example, in order to be an influence to people at work, there may be some things that I choose not to do. I choose not to go. That may not be sinful or wrong, but I choose not to do it because people know that I'm a Christian. And they may have in mind that Christians aren't supposed to do this, so I choose not to do it in order to maintain a good testimony. Does that make sense? All right, there's another crown that the Bible mentions, 1 Thessalonians chapter number two. I appreciate you being patient with me. We're just trying to take our time. This is a big subject and a big deal, and we want to try to do it justice. So we're not hurrying. We want to make sure that we get this across. 1 Thessalonians chapter two. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, and in verse number 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, we have another crown that is mentioned. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and our joy. This is called the crown 
of rejoicing. The crown of rejoicing. These are for those who make disciples. That when you've been discipled and you turn around and start teaching someone else and you help them to be raised to the Lord, basically you're raising children from a baby Christian to a serving Christian. When you take the time to labor, to teach someone and help them develop the habit of obedience to Christ and they begin to serve the Lord, this is a crown set for disciplers. The crown of rejoicing. Oh, what a wonderful crown to have to be able to influence and invest your life. It is not a wasted time for someone to teach another person. There is a crown up in heaven for those who take their time and give their lives to teach others to walk with the Lord. The crown of rejoicing. 2 Timothy chapter number 4, we have another crown. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 8. 2 Timothy chapter number four, and in verse eight. <clears throat> it says, 2 Timothy chapter four, verse eight, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but all them that love is appearing. Notice with me in verse six, let's get context. For I am now, this is Paul, am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. For I've fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept my faith. Remember, we're being judged off of our own opportunities and our own abilities. Paul had a course to run and he finished that course. Now, because of that, there's laid up for him a crown of righteousness. This crown of righteousness is for those who loved and look forward to the appearing of Christ. Knowing that when Christ appears, the very next thing on God's calendar is for us to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When Jesus Christ comes, I'm going to be judged. But I'm looking forward to him coming. How can I look forward to him coming? Because I've been running my race well. It's almost like kids who, um, <coughs> as an opposite... Kids who are looking for mom to get home. Now we have those stalker apps where you can see where mom's at any time. Mom's almost home. Hurry up, clean up, clean up, clean up. They're not looking forward to mom coming because when mom comes, they're getting in trouble because the whole world place is a mess. You guys remember those days, right? Here, we're looking forward to Jesus Christ coming and I'm not worried about the judgment seat as much because I've been trying to run my race, what he has given me. And I've been looking forward to his coming and I've been preparing. There's laid up a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. Notice with me, there's another crown, the book of James. The book of James. The book of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we have another crown that is mentioned. James chapter 1 and verse 12. James chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, here we have the crown of life. Notice that this is to a man that endureth temptation. Now, this isn't saying, well, I choose not to get the chocolate chip cookie. What temptation is this talking about? Well, we see it mentioned again in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and in verse number 10. Revelation 2.10, 
For none of these things which thou shalt suffer, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days, and be faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. This is often called the martyr's crown. Because they chose to be faithful to God, even if it cost them something. They, because people before, because they believed in Christ, people lost their houses. Some people lost their jobs. Others lost their lives. This is not a temptation where you choose not to get the chocolate chip cookie. This is a temptation that my, in order to ease my suffering, I choose to deny Christ to make things easier for me. Here they said, I don't care what they do. I'm still going to stand for God and I'm not going to deny. This is called the martyr's crown. This is a very big deal, the crown of life. There's one more crown that is mentioned. Now remember, there's a lot more rewards, but first Peter chapter five. And we'll speak of those rewards in subsequent messages. But for now, we're talking about the five crowns, which is part of the rewards we have when we stand before God, stand before Jesus at his judgment seat. This is only for those who are saved, but this is a judgment that we will stand and give an account for in our lives. Notice with me 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we have another crown that is mentioned. 1 Peter chapter 5, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Inside of the context, it's talking about a pastor. Feed the flock of God, verse 2, uh, which is among you. Uh, taking care of the sheep. This is called the shepherd's crown or the crown of glory. This is for pastors who shepherd God's flock that God has stewarded them over properly and well. There is a special crown for them. Now, the very next thing on God's calendar is called the rapture. The immediate event after the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ where we're going to be judged for our life, what we did for Christ, for and, and the motives that we had. We're going to be judged for our own opportunities and our own abilities. And there are five crowns that are mentioned. There are more rewards, but five crowns. That's the first thing. What's the second thing that happens? Well, turn back with me to Revelation chapter 4. We'll go quickly from here. Revelation chapter 4. The next event for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior after the rapture is going to be the judgment seat of Christ. After that, notice what else will occur. <laughs> Revelation chapter number four and verse number 10. Revelation four and verse 10. And the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him forever and ever and notice with this, cast their crowns before the throne. What's the next thing after the judgment seat? That these people are going to take these crowns that they have won, that they have earned, that they were rewarded, and we're going to give them back to Jesus Christ as an act of worship. Now remember, we can't do anything without God. Only God can do his work. We just set ourselves for his disposal. And we take these crowns and basically this is going to be a quantifiable way of us saying how much we love Christ. That when we get our rewards, we get these rewards. 
Then we turn around and say, Jesus, this is how much I loved you back on earth. This is the proof, the evidence, the quantifiable physical proof. I loved you. Could you imagine standing behind the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul saying, this is how much I loved you, Jesus. And I stand before him with just this. I loved you too, but this is all I loved you with. There's going to be lots of people who are going to stand before God and say, I didn't love you. I have no evidence that I loved you in my life. And standing before the God who died on the cross and paid for our price and rose again the third day to stand before him and say, Lord, I didn't love you. That is going to be a hard day. May I say that's going to be a day full of tears because when we try to worship God and say, this is just how much I loved you, just this little bit, it's all I have to show for my love for you, for me running my race, me taking those opportunities. I didn't take those opportunities. I ignored you. I disobeyed you. I didn't do what you told me to do. I don't have anything to show. Now, remember, there's also loss of rewards. Some of the rewards that you earned because you were so disobedient to the Lord were actually going to be taken away. You're going to be subtracted. And you're going to stand before God. I wish I loved you more. I wish I had something to show that I loved you. This is a very serious immediately after the rapture is going to be the judgment seat of Christ. After that, we're going to cast our crowns at his feet in an act of worship to show how much we had loved him while we were on earth, while we had the time. There's going to be a third event which we'll cover in a whole different message, and that's going to be the marriage of the Lamb. But one last thing in this text is that we will then be the witness, have, be a witness and have knowledge of the program of God concerning the tribulation. The word elder also carries the idea of spiritually mature. And you're going to witness throughout the rest of the book of Revelation while the tribulation is going on, is that John's going to have a question, what's going on here? And it's going to be an elder who comes up and says, let me tell you what's going on. Let me explain what's going on. And that makes sense. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. But in John 15, 15, Jesus Christ says, you are no longer servants. You are my friends and you will know what is going on. That's pretty powerful. Jesus is going to say, I'm going to tell you what's going on when you get there. And you'll be able to see the program of God during the tribulation and be able to witness it and explain it to other people. Notice with me, if you don't mind, we could see a couple times where elders give an explanation to John about what he's seeing. Revelation chapter five, verse five. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So it was one of these elders that came over to John and said, John, listen, Jesus already got the victory. Jesus is going to be the one that opens it up. Let me just show you another one. There's more passages. I'll just show you one more. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Notice with me in verse number 13. Revelation 7 verse 13. And one of the elders answered, say unto me, so one of these elders is talking to John, what are these which arrayed white robes and whence came they? So the elder comes over to John and says, hey, you see those guys over there? Hey, you know what they're there for? You know what's happening with them? And John says, in verse 14, and I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. That's basically his way of saying, I don't know. You, you tell me, tell me what's going on. 
And he said to me, these are they that came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So it was an elder that said, John, let me tell you what's going on. That we, the very first thing after the rapture is that we're going to stand before Christ and through the judgment seat. And we're going to be receive rewards or loss of rewards based of our labor and our motives for Christ. Then we're going to worship God by taking these crowns and setting them at his feet as a quantifiable, evidenced way of telling Jesus, this is how much I loved you. And then we're going to have the marriage supper of our marriage of the lamb. Then after this, we're going to have witness and watch the tribulation and the program of it. And we're going to be witnessing everything that God is doing to take for the Hebrew people to be brought to himself. We're going to watch and witness this, this seven years, looking on, cheering on, being able to understand what God is doing during that time. That's going to bring us to when we finally come back with God a little bit later, but that's what's going to be occurring for us. So you say, what do I do with this? I know there's a lot of information. I'm not trying to get you to walk out of here being able to quote and prove the 24 elders is those representative people of the church. We could do that. That's a whole different lection. What is the one thing that you need to pull out of this? You're going to stand before God and give an account. And you're going to stand before and give an account for your own opportunities and your own motives. The one thing you need to get across is that this is going to be a terrible thing, meaning an all striking way. It should put terror in you knowing you're going to stand before God. This is not something to take lightly. This is not something just to go, oh, no big deal. This is a big deal. You say, but pastor, now I start thinking about all the failures that I had. I know you can't do anything about yesterday, but what you can do is start from where you are and move forward. Start from where you are and take the next step. Start from where you are and determine that you are going to be obedient. That you are going to run the race that you have set before you with joy. And do it the way that God has given to you. And be equipped. By the way, you don't have to do it by yourself. There are people that are going to help you and train you, encourage you, and cheer you on. You don't have to do it by yourself, but you do have your own race to run. We have people that would love to help you. Love to encourage you. To help you to take the right step. But this is a big deal. Are you prepared? Are you looking forward to his coming? Or does something need to be adjusted so you could stand before him? What needs to be adjusted so that way you could prove to him that you loved him in a quantifiable way? Now's the time to make the adjustments. In order to change the future, we have to disrupt the present. What needs to be disrupted? What needs to be changed? What needs to be adjusted so you can stand before God and give a good accounting of your own opportunities and your own abilities and the course that God has given to you? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920-530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.